Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome back to the Pain Management and Joint Replacement Podcast brought to you by the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Patient Education Committee. I'm Dr. Trevor North, an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in hip and knee replacement in Detroit, Michigan. And I have with me today Dr. Mark Giska, a specialist in perioperative pain management. We have just wrapped up the first of three segments on this topic of pain management and joint replacement. That first segment was really a great overview. In this segment, we will focus on the anesthesia event and how it can help manage pain after joint replacement surgery. One thing that we talked about early on in our discussion was related to the medications that patients are getting ahead of time. And I had mentioned that they're a part of you know, a few different classes of medications or a few different groups of medications. There's a theory out there called multimodal analgesia or multimodal pain relief. In your own experience or expertise, how would you describe that to a patient? So I would say that, again, going back to the theory of the pain pathway that we talked about earlier, how there's a whole bunch of different body parts that are involved in transmitting that pain signal from the site of the injury or the surgical incision all the way up into the brain. I guess signals or wires, I guess, running through the body, there's different points in that line that we can kind of put a block in and kind of dampen the signal if you want to think about it in terms of uh, electricity or electrical engineering. So for instance, we talked about the Tylenol or non-steroidals we can use to kind of reduce the inflammation that's produced at the site of the tissue injury. There's opioids, of course, the pain medications like your morphine, dilaudid, oxycodones. Those affect more in the spinal cord rather than the peripheral nerves. We have a certain class of medication called NMDA antagonists, like such as even like magnesium or vitamin C, you know, there's a whole range of different medications that we can use to affect the pain pathway. And they all have a cumulative effect. They synergize with each other. They kind of all combine together to kind of help out with the pain relief. But taking a step back, so basically the whole theory with multimodal analgesia. Analgesia is a word for pain reduction, basically. You're using different modalities or different ways to reduce the pain instead of just relying on narcotics or instead of relying on one type. Okay, that's great, Mark. That's really good information on what multimodal means. I think that it's something that we as medical professionals throw around a lot and tell patients to, you know, you have to take all of these medications before surgery. And a lot of the times they don't understand that they're acting at these different switches or different points that you outlined. And that has an effect, sort of a cumulative or a synergistic effect, like you said, Uh, on that patient's pain. You talked briefly about some of the differences and options that we have with respect to the anesthetic during the surgical event. And one thing that I hoped you might be able to discuss in a little bit more detail is when we talk about a spinal anesthetic, and you mentioned that's a neuraxial pathway, and a general anesthetic, what are the differences between those two things for patients? So first of all, just because someone gets a neuraxial anesthetic or a spinal and epidural doesn't mean they're going to be awake during the whole surgery. So we're really focused on the comfort of the patients during the surgery. From my point of view, I try to make the patient experience as similar as possible. 
these lead to modalities. Oftentimes, people may be afraid of getting a small needle in their lower back. So we try to give people relaxing medication and walk them through the process as well, just to alleviate their fears. And then being uh, afraid of getting the spinal needle in their back, or the epidural needle, that's totally normal. I would say over half the people have some apprehension about that. And what we, as an anesthesiologist, again, we kind of walk them through the process. When their consents are signed and they're ready to go back, we'll give them a little relaxing rest and help them relax. A little IV pain medication too, so that way it doesn't burn as bad when it goes in. And most people, once the process is done, realize, hey, you know, that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. But in terms of other considerations, I suppose, um, the general anesthesia, again, general anesthesia, general meaning affecting the whole body, gets numbed up. Um, basically, it's a medical term for going to sleep for surgery. Other terms you may hear, like regional anesthesia, regional anesthesia, it doesn't refer to like the Metro Detroit area or what part of the country you live in. It refers to just one part of the body being anesthetized or getting numbed up, say a leg or an arm or the abdomen instead of the whole body. Okay, so it sounds like both that spinal anesthetic or epidural anesthetic and general anesthetic, both are reasonable options and ones that you would commonly employ for joint replacement surgery. And it sounds also, one thing that I, I heard you say was that just because you get a spinal anesthetic, it doesn't mean you're necessarily awake during the surgery. And I get that question a lot in the clinical setting when I discuss what the surgical day is going to look like for patients. And there is a lot of apprehension of being awake during the surgery. And from what you're saying, there is the possibility of being off fairly asleep and still having something like a spinal anesthetic, correct? Yeah, I would agree with that. And then if you had a preference, what would you prefer to have patients have? Would you rather have them have a spinal anesthetic versus a general anesthetic for something like hip and knee replacement surgery and why? Yeah, Trevor. So I think a lot of patients have their own specific needs or special cases. If someone's had back surgery in the past, they may not be a good candidate for a spinal anesthesia, for instance, or if they have fairly severe COPD or emphysema, might not be the best candidate for a general anesthetic. But for most people to come in, our practice is about 85%, 90% patients going on total hip or total knee for the first time. I think a neuroaxial, in other words, a spinal anesthesia would probably be best for most people. There are some benefits that we've seen in kind of the scientific medical literature that favor a spinal anesthetic over a general anesthetic. And that for those reasons include lower rates of nausea, vomiting, lower rates of deep vein thromboses, in other words, blood clots. It seems to have slightly better outcomes as well in terms of hospital stay, length of stay in the recovery period. Great. And one of the other things you mentioned a little bit earlier, Mark, was the use of a block. And you started to discuss a little bit about it. Could you just elaborate a little bit? What is a block and what does that mean to a patient's early recovery? And is it a good thing to have a block? Is it a bad thing to have a block? Tell us. Right. So I would say the block would be just another thing we can add in the multimodal analgesia program or plan. And a very important one too, actually. Think about going to the dentist's office. You go in there and they numb up uh, your mouth for the surgery and then you're kind of awake. You're aware that that that's happening, but it doesn't hurt. What the regional anesthetic or peripheral nerve block does is kind of have that feeling with your knee or your hip and kind of extend it over a longer period of time. 
We've kind of evolved our peripheral nerve blocks as well, especially for the knee, where not only do we take away the pain relief, but an important aspect too is we can kind of target a specific area of the knee where you can still walk around, still have good thigh strength and strengthen that knee because that's a really important aspect too. So nerves oftentimes, the same nerve that will carry pain sensation to your brain will also kind of, what we call a motor response, basically carry a motor response, like allow the muscles of that area to work as well. So one risk of a regional anesthetic or numbing the area is, well, what if you numb up the muscles around that area as well? So Mark, that's great for letting us know a little bit about the difference of general anesthesia and spinal anesthesia. You mentioned a little bit earlier about a peripheral nerve block. Can you tell me a little bit about, to you, what a peripheral nerve block is and how it works? And if someone's a candidate for it, why they might want that? The primary mode of anesthesia, or say the main way you'll have the surgery, it's the regional anesthesia or the peripheral nerve block. It's better to think of it as a, an additional pain technique. Another tool in our arsenal we have to help out with pain control after part of this multimodal analgesia thing that we keep talking about. So with the peripheral nerve block, the way it works basically is we can use, and now in 2020, most of these peripheral nerve blocks are done under ultrasound guidance. So basically we can scan a part of the body with ultrasound machine, kind of see these nerves as they run through the body and inject uh, local anesthetic or numbing medication around the nerves. And this is very targeted for that particular body part that we want to numb up. And again, we can kind of control how long that lasts for as well. Some people come in for finger surgery and they just don't want to be completely asleep for it, but they don't need it to be numb overnight. So we just give a dose of local anesthetic that lasts for like five hours or so. But say for total knee surgery, for instance, if you're getting knee replaced, you probably want a few days of pain relief, right? So what we can do is not only do we inject some numbing medication, but then we can also extend the duration of that with catheters, basically tubing that goes underneath the skin and kind of delivers medication continuously. And we've talked a lot about how those peripheral nerve blocks and like you mentioned, extending that out into nerve catheters with respect to knee surgery. Are there any similar options for hip replacement surgery? Right. So if you think about nerves and how they act, one important thing that we learned in medical school, the same nerves that kind of carry pain from a part of the body to the brain also carry the motor signal, basically your brain telling the body part to move, the motor signal from the brain back to the body part. So unfortunately with the hip, the way it's situated in the body, a lot of times when we block the nerves to the hip, we also end up kind of blocking the nerves that move the hip as well and the thigh bone as well. So unfortunately, a lot of the nerve blocks that we have in 2020 to numb up the hip also numb up the leg and they interfere with the recovery process, physical therapy, and sometimes do more harm than good, what we've found so far. Okay, great. Well, that's good information. That said, though, each patient is different, and you and your doctor may decide that there are particular nerve blocks or injections for the hip that may be suitable for you in your surgery. Yeah, and that's something certainly that comes up at some of our 
uh, hip and knee conferences throughout the year about some certain surgeons or some surgeons will use local injections around the tissue similar to that in the knee to try and help that uh, early post-operative pain after hip replacement. And I think that that's fairly site and, and surgeon dependent. But Mark, I've really enjoyed the conversation so far and you've given us some great information. We've talked about pain and how it's perceived and what options we have in the preoperative setting and in surgery to help manage early postoperative pain in patients undergoing joint replacement surgery. Well, thank you everyone for joining us thus far. Please join us for our third and final segment on pain management and joint replacement surgery coming up next. In this section, we'll be talking about postoperative pain management and some of the associated complications to watch out for following surgery. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.